Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. My name is Zach, if we've never met before. I'm one of the assistant pastors here at Redeemer. Would you open up with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7? 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to be finishing up our Advent series. We've been looking at Great David's Greater Son. Christmas and Advent through the lens of the life of David. And so today, we come to a text that is pivotal in the history of redemption for Israel. God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Here, David has some really bold New Year's resolutions. He has some bold plans for the Lord, but God was quick to disrupt David's plans with plans that were even better. It's been fun to see the Christmas cards come in, and it's really funny to see how many of your 2020 Christmas cards quote, O holy night, a thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. And that's the kind of good news that we have today in God's covenant with David. A thrill of hope and a weary world rejoicing because of what God would do through his kingdom. So let's read from 2 Samuel chapter 7, and then we're going to pray. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house for Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people from Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people, Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more. As formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your grace to us in Jesus. Lord, this Christmas season, a few days later, as we are 
Lord, either reeling from rejoicing or reeling from any number of things, I pray, Lord, that you would meet us here. Lord, we have all kinds of cares and concerns on our hearts. We have all kinds of kingdoms tugging for our allegiances, our kingdom of ourselves, Lord, the kingdoms of this world. So I do pray, Lord, that you would use your word today to realign and readjust our plans. It's in your precious name that I pray. Amen. In many traditions, this weekend marks the transition from Advent, which is a season of longing and waiting and anticipation, a really somber and sober time, into the season of Christmas, 12 days of Christmas, a season of celebrating light and life, right? Our cultures kind of flip that. Now we do about 90 days of celebration of Christmas, and then you get to the 25th and it's just done. But really what we can do here is see this time that we've been waiting for a Savior and then we can turn and celebrate. It may be tempting for us, though, after a year like 2020, to place our hope in a restart, in a new year, and in our plans for a new year, and what we think is our ability to now accomplish our plans when we weren't able to accomplish them before. So maybe you're, optim- you're an optimist, and that's your view of 2021. Or maybe you're a little bit more like me, and you kind of come at things with a little bit more cynicism, right? And you think, if this is the third day of Christmas, what kind of French hen is about to take up roost in my life? Or a turtle dove, a partridge in the pear tree. So whether you are the eternal optimist or you struggle with cynicism like I do, you may be weary of what this year has meant for us. And you may be looking to 2021 for a change of some type. It may have been a dark year for you, weary of facing the darkness. And so, friends, today we're here to be reminded that into the darkness a light has shined. Into the darkness a light has shined. There is good news of great joy for us here in this beautiful text. And so there are just three things for us I hope for us to consider today in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that today we can celebrate. Here on this side of Christmas, we can celebrate that our Bethlehem King secures for us God's tangible presence, His covenant promises, and His kingdom purpose. Our Bethlehem King secures for us. We are safe and secure in His tangible presence his covenant promises, and his kingdom purpose. My hope is that today you would rest in the safety and security of the kingdom of great David's greater son. So first, our Bethlehem king secures for us God's tangible presence. Look, look with me at verse 2. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. David begins with great plans for God. You see, God had established his kingdom. The kingdom of Israel was finally in a place, it was a dream come true, right? The Ark of the Covenant had been brought up. It had been established in Jerusalem. David was reigning. And now he turns and expresses what really is a good desire of expressing appreciation for God having been with him and blessing his kingdom. But in verse 4, we see that God is quick to disrupt his plan. He steps in and says, you're not going to build me a house. I've never lived in a house of cedar. When my people have lived in a tent, I was there with them. David's plan is to build a temple, to build a house 
for God. Now, in the nations that were surrounding Israel, it was common practice for a king to build a house, to build a temple for their false god in order to provide rest for that god, in order to win their favor. Isn't that interesting? The king thinks, I can build a house for this god, so this, this god will come and visit us, and we can receive the material blessings. Folklore surrounding Baal, one of the most common false gods in particular, shows that Baal built for himself a grand palace. Do you see how the one true God, how Yahweh turns this upside down? These false gods build for themselves great palaces and demand that their kings do these things for them. But Yahweh comes and says, no, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to make you into a house. I will make you into a house. There's a little play on words here too. David says, I will build you a house, and God says, I will make you into a house, that David himself would be a house. The one commentator puts it this way, David had in mind a dwelling place, while God had in mind a dynasty. David was thinking of a dwelling place, God was thinking of a dynasty. The beautiful freedom that's communicated through Nathan to David is this, God needs nothing from you. God needs nothing from you and yet wants to be near you. And friends, I hope you can hear that today. God needs nothing from you and yet is committed to staying with you. His faithfulness manifests itself as presence. He is faithful to us. He was faithful to David by being with him, with him in the pasture with him as he faced Goliath, with him as Saul pursued him in the wilderness. And even as Israel experienced the discipline of the Lord as they wandered in the desert for 40 years, God reveals his character and his kindness in that he doesn't send his children anywhere that he is not willing to go himself. If they were in the wilderness in a tent, God was going to be in the wilderness in a tent with them. God does not send his children anywhere that he is not willing to go himself, including suffering, including death itself. In 2014, 2015, Kristen and I struggled with infertility. And then we began the adoption process. And for us, part of the adoption process was the fundraising process. And so we held a gigantic garage sale at our house. And many of you actually helped um, put that together. Many of you gave abundantly. But the day before, we start setting up, and we are overwhelmed with the sheer amount of stuff that's packed into our house. So the day before, the night before, we start pulling it out, and it's covering our carport, it's covering our yard, all the stuff that you and many others gave. And we realized we had a problem, that overnight, this stuff is just going to be sitting in our yard. Well, my father-in-law and two of my brother-in-laws said, we will sleep in the yard. One of them hung up a hammock, and the other two slept in their cars. And so while Chris and I were safe and sound in our beds, resting, they were in the yard. Their faithfulness manifested itself as presence. They were simply there. They were nearby for us and ultimately for our daughter, right? This is what God does for his people. Now, if we peek ahead to verses 12 and 13, we will see that, God, that David's son would build a house. And it's true. We knew that Solomon would build an elaborate temple. We see this in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. But that house was destroyed. And even when it was rebuilt, 
It lacked the glory of before, the power and the glory of God in that temple. Friends, Solomon's temple was just a shadow. The thing itself was still to be revealed. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 2. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. And again in Hebrews 9, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Friends, the infant lying in a manger in Bethlehem was a more glorious tent than the tabernacle, and a more glorious temple than the one that Solomon built. This child, skin and bones and feeling and flesh, not deity disguised as humanity, but perfect unity, God in the fabric of humanity. God in the fabric of humanity. Revelation 21, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Great David's greater son, the son of Ruth and Boaz in Bethlehem. This child, he dwelled in a tent in a fabric that could be torn. This human fabric that was torn our Savior. Because the fullness of God was housed in a body, we come to a house that's not made of cedar. We are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God does not just dwell with us anymore. By the Spirit, He dwells in us. The ultimate form of with us. God in us. Lately, we have not been able to show the hospitality that we enjoy showing. I love having our house full of as many people that we can pack into it. But friends, whether you believe or not, maybe you're tuning in because it's around Christmas time. Maybe you're here with family. I want to invite you into a house that's packed full. This house. The house of the Lord the dwelling place of God. Whether you know and trust him today or not, come into this house, dwell here, approach this throne, rest in this tent. And when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, as I know many of you have this year, in all kinds of ways, you can fear no evil. Why? Because he is with you. This king has secured for you the tangible presence of God. Next, this Bethlehem king secures for us God's covenant promises. The king secures for us God's covenant promise. Most English Bibles, you'll see right at the beginning of this section, chapter 7, rightly mark this as God's covenant with David. But the Hebrew word covenant doesn't actually appear in this text. And yet it holds all the markers of what we consider a covenant and what we learn from Scripture is a covenant, all the components are there. Well, let's back up a little bit. What do we mean when we say this word covenant? A covenant is a life and death promise. 
It was typically made in these ancient Near East cultures between a king and a servant, a lord and a vassal. It is so much more relational than a contract, but it's a commitment, it's a promise. It's a form of expressing and securing an authoritative yet deeply personal relationship. And covenants always had recognizable characteristics, right? Every covenant had parties. Who, who's making this promise? Who are the two parties? Who's the Lord? Who's the vassal? Who's the king? Who's the servant? Every covenant has conditions. Here's what behavior is going to look like going forward in this new relationship. Every covenant had blessings. Here's the benefits that you're going to receive once you enter into this, benef- this relationship. There are also consequences. Here's what it will look like if you break the covenant. And that typically had to do with life and death. Someone was going to die if someone broke a covenant like this. And then finally, there was a sign associated with a covenant. There was always an external picture of the internal reality, something on the outside that shows as a sign for the inward reality. When I'm teaching kids and talking about covenants, I always pull off my wedding ring and I show it to them. It's an external sign of an internal reality, of a commitment. So, this covenant that God made with with his people started with Adam, and then with Noah, and then with Abraham, and then with Moses, now with David, and ultimately fulfilled in Christ. The relationship that started with one person grew into a family, grew into a nation, and now here in this text, friends, it's growing into a kingdom. God's blessing, like a scroll slowly being unraveled, we start to see God's covenant get more beautiful and more big and more wonderful as time goes on. So we see here in this text what God has already done for David. He brought him out of the pasture. He defeated his enemies. And then he starts making new promises. I will give you a great name. I will give your people a dwelling place. I will give you rest. But notice who the promises and the blessings are for. God is making the promises to David, but they're actually for Israel. God's covenant with David is simply a means to an end to bless God's children. God makes David secure, we can see that in verse 9, so that he can make Israel secure. And we see that in verse 11. One commentator puts it this way, Through the covenant, God desires to provide a safe home for his children. The covenant is a means of establishing a safe home for his children. And so the reign and the kingdom of David is simply a means to an end. The goal is that the beloved children of God could live in a house that you can leave the doors unlocked. That the children of God could live in a city that you can leave the gates wide open. We actually see that in Revelation 21. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Safe and sound in the city of God, the house of God. Of God. That's the goal. David is a means to that end. As a parent and as a pastor, many times I can be lured into this temptation of thinking that somehow, and, and I say this, you can protect them. You can keep them and shield them from any hurt. You can and must do everything to keep them from feeling pain. You can keep them safe. And I call it a temptation because sometimes I truly believe that it's true. Sometimes I think it's possible. But it's not. 
I can buy the bike helmets. I can teach. I can warn. I can be there as much as possible, right? But I can't promise my children, I can't promise you that you will never hurt, that you will never experience pain. And sometimes my means of trying to keep that are actually more hurtful. Friends, no earthly relationship, no church, local expression of the church, no earthly promise can give you the safety and the security and the love that you need because it's all going to be imperfect. But God. But God. His covenant promises are perfect. They are flawless. They are never failing. Another scholar points out that death cannot annul his promises, sin cannot destroy his promises, and time cannot exhaust his promises. Verses 12 and 13, we see that death cannot annul God's promises. When David is dead and gone, the promises will continue. Verses 14 and 15, we see that sin cannot destroy. David's sons would be, David himself and all of David's sons would be imperfect, sinful kings. Some absolutely evil and some simply imperfect. And yet, the covenant promises continued. And then finally, time will not exhaust these covenant promises. This kingdom is forever. Why? Why does death not annul, sin not destroy, and time not exhaust? Because the conditions of obedience and righteousness that this covenant laid down, here's what's expected in this covenant. You are to be my son, to walk with me in righteousness and holiness. All of those conditions were met by Jesus in his perfect life. All the penalties of David and his sons and all of us breaking this covenant were absorbed in Christ's perfect death and all the promises of safety and security within a new dwelling place and a true dynasty were kept in Jesus' perfect resurrection. Perfect life, perfect death, perfect resurrection. That means perfect covenant promises for us. Safe and secure resting there in him. You and me stand as unworthy beneficiaries of a covenant made thousands of years before we were born. Recently, a neighbor of mine who lived alone and had no family passed away. And fairly distant relatives of his received everything. That's you and me. Unworthy beneficiaries of a promise made to someone else. That's who we are in the covenant of grace. So we celebrate that our king from Bethlehem, because he alone makes us safe and secure and makes promises that he can keep while you and I are out writing checks that we can't cash. God is keeping promises that he actually keeps. He secures for us God's covenant promises. And finally, our Bethlehem king secures for us God's kingdom purpose. Look with me at verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. He shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. His kingdom. So God turns and looks past David's plan, past the current circumstances, and he looks into the future. The focus of the text here shifts entirely from dwelling place and onto dynasty. And it says that David's line would stand forever. But we know from 1 Kings chapter 11 
that the kingdom was actually stripped from Solomon. Israel had a glorious reign from David and into most of Solomon. Then the kingdom was stripped from Solomon himself. And it passed, like we talked about, through good and evil sons of David until Jerusalem fell completely. And Israel went into Babylonian exile. From an earthly perspective, there is no king. There is no kingdom. God, did you keep the promise? Is there an everlasting kingdom? God would not be false with himself. He would not go back on his word. Though the family tree of David be chopped down to a stump, the shoot of Jesse would emerge and grow into a tree of life. The shoot of Jesse growing into a tree of life. God shared his throne with David for a season in order to share it forever with his son in the incarnation. David's reign on earth was temporary. His son's reign on earth was temporary. But the kingdom was to be forever. Jesus, our Messiah, unites the throne of man with the throne of God and thus makes peace between heaven and earth. Do you see it? The throne of God, the throne of man together. Peace on earth. That's what's happening in the incarnation. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time. A king and a kingdom. Now, it is pretty well established, if not even a little obvious, for me to say Jesus is the king, right? It's so common for Scripture to look back on 2 Samuel 7 and talk about the Lord's kingship and the kingdom of God, that it's ubiquitous in Scripture. And so often with repetition, we can hear things and it just glides right over our heads because we're so used to it. It's pretty easy for us to say that Jesus is the king, even a non-believer, could say, well, yeah, Christians believe that God is king. Jesus is king. What does that actually mean, though? What's more difficult for us is not to say that Jesus is king. It's to say, how do we actually live as, as if we're citizens of the kingdom of God? It's one thing to give lip service and say that Jesus is the king. It's another thing to live as if we are actually citizens of the kingdom of God. Now, the issue of how Christians are to live as members of an earth, a heavenly kingdom while still being a part of earthly kingdoms is a debate that has been raging for millennia, okay? And I'm not going to pretend that one sermon can even begin to scratch the surface of that question. However, we do have simple guidance from this text on what it means for us that God made this kingdom promise to David. We see that God's covenant with David and his greater son have a time and a place. There is a, specific, a particular time and a particular place for this kingdom. If we do not see the time and place of God's covenant promises about kingdom to David and Israel, people on one end of the political perspective will look and read and say, see, God is on our side. When they read passages that are about David's kingdom, and then people on the other side of the political perspective will read another passage and say, see, the Lord is on our side. But what we see in this text is that the kingdom of David, the kingdom of David's greater son, have a particular time and a particular place. Look with me again at verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 
it is David's greater son whose house and kingdom and throne would last forever. It is only the son of David's kingdom that is everlasting. The hope and safety and security of the church was never dependent on Babylon, on Rome, or even on the Holy Roman Empire, or even on the American Empire. The church was never dependent on these empires. All have fallen or will fall. All earthly kingdoms, whether they are overtly opposed to the kingdom of God or whether they co-opt his name for their own gain, have done great evil in establishing their kingdoms on earth. Philippians 3 says this, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, hold on just a second. Please don't hear me saying what Scripture does not teach and what I am not saying. To say that we are citizens of the kingdom of God, to say we are citizens of heaven, is not to say that Scripture teaches that the kingdom is only spiritual. Scripture does not teach that the kingdom of God is only spiritual, as if the incarnation and resurrection could do anything other than reconcile heaven and earth and our physical bodies. We have that hope in our resurrection. Do you hear me, church? That is not what Scripture teaches. To say that we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven does not give us a hall pass to be uninvolved or unconcerned with this world. Righteousness, justice, peace, locally, nationally, globally. As a Christian, you are free to serve, defend this country, to hold our leaders accountable. But what this, that isn't what this does not mean, that somehow we only have a spiritual kingdom. But what it does mean is that God is never dependent on earthly governments to do His will or advance His glory. Is God ever dependent on an earthly king for His glory or His kingdom advancing? No. In fact, over and over in Scripture, we see Him working in spite of these kings. He's never dependent on that. So, the time of the kingdom of David and great David's greater son is eternal. And his is the only everlasting kingdom. We need to see that. Next, there's a place. There's a place for the kingdom of God. Look with me at verse 10. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Israel was planted in a promised land. David's throne was in Jerusalem. It was at Zion, a particular place in a particular country for a particular time in history, and it was temporary. David's reign in Jerusalem, David as king of Israel, meant that Israel had power and wealth and safety and security. But friends, I need you to hear me. The throne is no longer in Jerusalem. Friends, where is the throne now? It's in heaven. The throne of the king is in heaven Jesus not only is not only coming as a king to a new Jerusalem, he's also coming back as a judge to make right the evil of every nation. His throne transcends all nations across all time and space and history. This should make us tremble rather than to be confident in our own plans, our own vision for any particular country, 
or time in history. Friends, Jesus is already and not yet ruling and reigning over a kingdom that transcends earthly kingdoms. Transcends earthly kingdoms. Our hearts, our lives, and our allegiances must transcend earthly kingdoms if we are to be faithful to our primary citizenship. The coming kingdom of God implies the displacement of other kingdoms. And the tough question for me is then, what kingdoms am I looking to for my safety and security? What kingdom am I looking to to feel safe and secure? Which is what deep down inside we're all longing for. In our families, in our state, in our country, in our world. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus speaks of the reality of Satan's work in the world when he says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. We know this world is divided. We know the earthly kingdoms are divided. But friends, the house of David is not divided. The house of David is not divided. The kingdom of God is not divided. And it stands against the very gates of hell. It stands against the very gates of hell. If God's faithfulness is manifested to us in His presence, His relationship to us manifested in covenant, His kingdom is manifested to us in His very body, the church. The kingdom of God scattered throughout the world across the ages. May this house not be known as being divided against itself. May this house not be known for being divided against itself. From Revelation 5, we read that we are a ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation to be a kingdom. A kingdom, do you hear that? And priests for God. May we seek the good of any earthly city the Lord sees fit to plant us and stand against evil in all its forms and love our neighbors. But may we never allow the successes or failures of an earthly kingdom to become the barometer of our hope to be our source of safety and security. We have a throne and a king that is transcendent above it all. As another pastor put it, the kingdom of the United States will be a mere footnote in the archives of the new creation. It is the everlasting kingdom of the house of David, great David's greater son, where the children of God find safety and security. Voyage to the Star Kingdom is a book by Anne Riley that has been profoundly helpful to us and our family in processing various griefs and losses. It's an allegory. It's a story that represents life and death and eternal life. And it's a heartbreaking story of a family that lost their two youngest daughters and are reunited with them again in the new kingdom, in the kingdom of heaven. I would like to just read a portion of it. For us this morning. The Star King has prepared a banquet for you at the Radiant Place, said the angelfish. I will be your guide on the great adventure to the Star Kingdom. A banquet, said the youngest. I must wear my ruffled dress. A great adventure, says the middle daughter. I must bring a map. A Star King, said the oldest daughter. We must take him a gift. The angelfish smiled. There is no need for dresses. The king will give you beautiful satin gowns. There is no need for a map. The king will draw you to himself. There is no need for gifts. Your presence 
will be his greatest treasure. Soon they reach the celestial sea. What is that? asked the middle daughter. A great shadow lurked in front of the boat. It was so dense that it blotted out many of the stars. The angelfish flew faster, tugging the boat along behind her. The prince of darkness fights the star king at every turn. The shadow is his attempt to separate us from the king. Will it hurt us? asked the youngest. Fear not, said the angelfish. It carries no sting for you. You will see that the prince of darkness has already lost the fight. The boat drew closer to the shadow. Will we fly through it? asked the youngest daughter. Yes, said the angelfish. The shadow can seem frightening, but you must remember that you are children of the star king. You are strong enough to face the shadow because he has given you his strength. I have come in the name of the star king, shouted each girl. The prince of darkness has no power over me. Mountains jutted out from the celestial sea, their tops gleaming with snow. And at the bottom of the mountains in a green valley sat the radiant place. Are you the star king? asked the youngest daughter, although she felt sure he was. The king smiled. I have many names. Elohim, Jehovah, the Alpha and the Omega, the Prince of Peace, the Good Shepherd, and yes, the Star King. Oh, my beloved children, I'm so glad you are here. He opened his arms and they ran to him. A light has shined in the darkness and the darkness has not, cannot, and will not overcome the light of this world in his kingdom. Friends, today you have the tangible presence of God. He's kept his covenant promises to you and the purpose of his kingdom revealed in your life as you are united to Christ and to his church is one of true freedom, justice, beauty, safety, and security. A home for God's children. You have a dwelling place within an everlasting dynasty. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this is good news for us. I pray that it would sink down deep into our hearts. I pray that you would write the eternal truth of your good news and your gospel into our souls this morning. Thank you that we can celebrate the good news of Christmas, Lord, on this side of your incarnation. We confess our sin. We confess that, Lord, we look to other kingdoms to keep us safe and secure, but we are so thankful for the forgiveness and grace that we find in you. Thank you for these dear people, those in the room right now and those joining us from home. We love you, and it's the name of our King, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.